Let me welcome all of you to another episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. And in this episode, we're going to talk to epidemiologist, technologist, and philanthropist, Dr. Larry Brilliant, who played a singular role with the World Health Organization back in the 1970s in helping to eradicate smallpox, a remarkable achievement to be sure. For years, he also warned the world of a potential devastating pandemic, which was featured in the film Contagion. Some of you may remember he served as technical advisor, and which proves him to be all too prescient. He served as chairman of the board of Ending Pandemics and co-founded with Stuart Brand of Whole Earth Catalog fame, the early conferencing system, The Well. He also traveled with the Grateful Dead, and he has been a CEO of several public companies and venture-backed startups, was inaugural director of Google Google.org, first CEO of the Skull Global Threats Fund and co-founder and chair of the SIVA Foundation. He has a number of registered tech patents and has published a number of books, including The Business of Doing Good and The Management of Smallpox Eradication in India. Dr. Brilliant also is professor of international health at the University of Michigan. He received his MD from Wayne State University, also in Michigan, Detroit. And welcome, Larry Brilliant. Delighted to have you. Michael, it's good to see you, and thank you very much for inviting me. Well, delighted, as I said, to have you here, and uh, I know that our listeners will be, and I want to remind those of you who are listening that you can, if you're not a part of this community, you can become a part of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny by going to graymatter.show. I want to begin, Larry, by talking with you about the threat of the new variants, and perhaps you can really enlighten us about BA5 or the Omicron subvariant, uh, BA2.75, which you call the next car in the train. Um, I remember an article you did a number of years ago called Forever Virus. Uh, the Forever Virus, indeed, it sometimes seems to those of you doing research like it might be, though there's questions about how long these variants are going to last and how long they're going to be with us. Uh, COVID, I think you've described as being on a track, and this is now, what, the third leading cause uh, of, well, diseases and deaths. Um, the vaccine is waning, and boosters are not being taken by a lot of people. So I, I guess I'd really like, from someone with your expertise, not only to talk about the subvariants and where we are, but where we're headed. Well, first, it's great to hear your voice. I'm, I'm enjoying it. I I, I miss you on my morning drive. Um, you know, so I don't have a crystal ball, um, and uh, none of us do. Uh, I did. I did just finish an article in Foreign Affairs, the current issue, which is called "Inevitable Outbreaks." Um, I was asked to try to predict what the next bad pandemic would be, but of course, that's also impossible. But we we tried to figure out what were the the likely candidates, anyway. Um, so, SARS-CoV-2, a coronavirus, is the seventh coronavirus that we have now or have had recently. Four of those coronaviruses have retired into the retirement home, which is called they become colds. So, about half of the colds that you get every year or every two years, whenever you get it, are individual variants that look a lot like SARS-CoV-2. They also look a little bit like SARS, which was a very fatal disease, killing almost half of the people who got it, or like MERS. MERS is a disease of camels. 
SARS was the disease of uh, bats and civet cats, and SARS-CoV-2, a disease of bats. The, the possibility exists that SARS-CoV-2 will follow the route of these other four coronaviruses that have become colds. Indeed, there are well over 500 subvariants now, a lot of things to track. But one route, uh, and, and probably inevitably, the way that this pandemic will end, that SARS-CoV-2 will retire, will be it will become a cold. And the question is, are we there yet? And every time my friends and colleagues have predicted that we're there, a new variant has come. You, re you remember when Delta came and really shocked everybody with its high morbidity, mortality, transmissibility. And then last winter, and it was only last winter that Omicron began. Uh, and now we are faced with these new subvariants of Omicron. That's a bit technical, but the XBB 1.5 that you were talking about, it's called the X because it is caused by a reassortment or recombination of two other subvariants of COVID, each of them providing perhaps their, their, their worst quality from our perspective. So it is the most immune evasive of all the variants and subvariants that we've seen. That means if you've had COVID three or four months ago, you can be reinfected with it. Even if you're up to date on your vaccines, you can be infected with it. So as people watch the uh, catastrophe in slow motion that is China's reopening, the concern has been that with Chinese New Year, so many people would leave China and infect the rest of the world. I'm not so worried about that. The variant that is in China is uh, BA7. We already have that. So people bringing that here doesn't worry me as much as our sending XBB 1.5 into China. And indeed, 7 or 8% of all the, the variants in China already are this variant. By the way, it, WHO has not given it a Greek letter. So a few epidemiologists got together, one in particular, and named it the Kraken. Uh, that's a pretty gruesome name. But the Kraken is already in China. So now comes the question of will it infect a billion people, half a billion people, and how rapidly will it do that? Will it fritter out in China, as it seems to be frittering out here? Or will it infect so many other immune compromised people that it will reassort again. And again, this is crystal ball gazing, isn't it? When you're trying to make those kind of assessments. It's very, very difficult. I mean, that's why uh, the world is sort of divided into two camps. Those who say, I'm all over it. I'm done with it. I'm not going to think about it anymore. And those who are thinking about it all the time. Um, I'm, I'm sort of getting a little bit more comfortable with the idea that with 500 subvariants, that may be the final curtain call, but uh, we'll have to wait and see what the effect of Chinese New Year will be. In well, I hope you're right because then we don't have the forever virus; we have at least some terminus for this virus. But there are also, and, and I want to get into this with you. I want to talk about China too, but there are also those who are concerned about uh, 
the data keeping, um, that they're, you know, somebody goes into the hospital with a gunshot wound and turns out to get COVID, does that person die of COVID? Uh, a lot of these numbers are not knowable, really, are they? I don't think it matters. I think that's much to do about nothing. Um, uh, what, what epidemiologists look at are excess deaths, deaths in excess of what would be expected what happened last year, the year before. And then we look at those number of deaths in the middle of a pandemic. And the conclusion is, would those deaths have taken place if it weren't for the pandemic? And in most cases, the answer is they would not have. Uh, not the gunshot wound one. But usually people go into a hospital. If they have COVID they, and, they, and they wind up in the hospital, they may also be diabetic. They may be obese. They, they may have uh, chemotherapy. They may be immunocompromised. And so people sometimes will attribute that death to the cancer or the obesity or the diabetes. Sometimes they'll attribute uh, uh, somebody who dies of a diabetic coma to the COVID. Um, it's really difficult to parse that. And in China, we don't know that at all. In India, we only know the, the actual cause of death for less than 50% of deaths. So um, I like the idea of using excess deaths as a as a proxy. Right now in the United States, COVID is probably the third leading cause of death, uh, as it has been, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yet um, the vaccines are waning. Um, there's, um, I mean, these bivalent boosters. Fewer people are taking them. All of that gives me pause. So the bivalent vaccine is probably better than most of us expected. Um, most importantly, it's really, really good at keeping you from getting dead. That's the most important thing to remember. It's uh, probably 99, 98% effective against keeping you from getting dead. It's probably in the mid 80s for keeping you from getting really sick in the hospital. Maybe it's 30, 40% effective against keeping you from getting it. And, and I think that's where people feel a kind of disappointment that the vaccines don't protect you from getting the disease, because in most people's mind, that's what a vaccine is for. But when Operation uh, Warp Speed was created, the spec sheet, the request that they put out was not to make a vaccine that would protect you from getting it. The request was make a vaccine that protects people from getting in the hospital, overrunning the hospital. Uh, bringing our healthcare system down and protecting people from getting dead. And they did that. Um, I think a lot of anti-vaxxers uh, would be certainly benefited by knowing what you just said, because they seem to think that the, or they seem to come back to the argument that this was supposed to be a vaccine that would keep them from getting COVID. I don't blame them. I mean, uh, most of the other vaccines that we have do keep us from getting the disease. And, um, you know, I think that if Operation Warp Speed had been a little bit more careful and consulted a few more people, they may have designed a different uh, target for a vaccine. On the other hand, that would have slowed down the production, uh, the creation of the vaccine. So, you know, given that there was a pandemic just starting and nobody knew very much about it, I think they did pretty good, but they could have done better. Why not uh, warp speed for like neuroviruses or for, for that matter, uh, the kind of thing that's uh, afflicting a lot of children now? Um, uh, you know, the, the RSV. RSV. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of those viruses that 
are really doing a lot of damage, uh, very deleterious. Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to make a vaccine uh, for the first time against the disease. And prior to uh, Operation Warp Speed and COVID, uh, the fastest vaccine ever made was four years, uh, and that was for mumps. Um, you know, look at how long we've struggled to get a vaccine against HIV, AIDS, or malaria. Um, the polio vaccine it took a very long time to be developed. So it's it's not so easy, even with the uh, accelerated program that Operation Warp Speed did. And I have to say, the anti-vaxxers are having an effect. They have made many of the researchers dispirited. They've made many of the funders dispirited. Um, uh, and, and I find the anti-vax movement complex. I mean, there's right-wing anti-vaxxers, left-wing anti-vaxxers, QAnon anti-vaxxers. So it's not a, a monolithic group, but it, it has certainly had an effect on damping uh, scientific uh, progress because of because of that. Well, some of the things that they were asserting have just proven not to be true, like uh, more likely for people over 60 to be prone to strokes. Those, I think that's been pretty much uh, disproven now. But on the other hand, um, I've been reading recently of anti-vaxxers saying um, that vaccines affect fertility. Um, we don't really know whether that's possibly true, do we? Oh, I think the vaccines absolutely affect fertility because if you get COVID, you're not going to feel like procreating very much. <laughs> well, I mean, aside from that, though, I mean, the notion is somehow that it's going to keep you from getting pregnant. You know, that that actually was the biggest uh, uh, and hateful rumor against the polio vaccine. Uh, and it's the reason why uh, Bill Gates actually wound up flying into Nigeria to go to Kano to persuade the Muslim imams that the polio vaccine did not protect you, did not stop you from uh, 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 procreating. In fact, there was a rumor that it stopped you from being um, able to get an erection. Um, no, we've seen disinformation about vaccines since the first vaccine was made. By the way, congratulations. Today is the, what is it, the 200th? 250th anniversary of uh, uh, the death of Jenner, who was the who created the first vaccine. And today we're celebrating the first vaccine ever made, uh, which was the smallpox vaccine that was made, I think, by observation that nursemaid, uh, that uh, uh, milkmaids had beautiful complexions, but it wasn't because they drank the milk. It was because they were the only women and the only men who didn't have scars from smallpox on their face. Mm. And Edward Jenner had this incredible leap of imagination. He saw lesions on the fingers of milkmaids. And he somehow thought if you took the pus from the uh, lesion on a milkmaid's fingers and you injected it into children, they would be immune to small from smallpox. And he was right. <laughs> but how he knew that or how he thought that through, I don't know. But today we celebrate uh, uh, 250 years of the first vaccine. Much to celebrate there. Um, yeah, you were, as I said in my introduction, involved in the eradication of smallpox. Uh, there was a secret weapon you had from someone up in the ashram days, I think, when you were in the <laughs> Himalayas. So maybe we can. But what I was th thinking about in conjunction with that was 
you had even more resistance to vaccinations uh, back then because among the Indian population because they believed that the deity or deities had uh, sort of prescribed them from having anything put into their system, right? Um, well, th there were a couple of reasons, and I, I do think the anti-vax movement against smallpox vaccine in India was worse than what we're seeing in the United exactly States. Exactly what I was saying, oh, yeah. Yeah, but, but part, the main reason was in order to... So the name vaccine comes from the Latin word vacus, which means cow, because it was originally cowpox that was the first vaccine. Uh, if you get cowpox, you're immune to smallpox. But even in the 1970s, when we were working to eradicate smallpox, the way the vaccine was made by inducing cowpox in cows and then harvesting that pus, that exudate, that serum, and to do that, you had to kill the cow. And killing a cow in India, where cows are sacred, that's what created the most anti-vax movement, I think, in history. But you're also right. There was a deity named Shitalama. In, in Sanskrit, that means the cooling mother. And Shitalama was the patron saint, so to speak, of smallpox. And um, it's very funny because my wife, Girija, when we were in India, we spoke Hindi. We had lived in an ashram. We were very comfortable in that world. But my wife said, why don't we go to the Shitala temples to do surveillance to find uh, smallpox cases? And the, the priests there were only happy to help us, and we were able to find and vaccinate more people. Um, I was very, very happy to think that we put uh, Shitalama out of business. When I came back to India a few years ago, I saw that Shitalama is now the patron saint of measles, so she still has some work to do. And we have a question coming in, and questions are welcome. This is from Mexico City. Juan wants to know, considering that the next pandemic is unavoidable, what should the public or government do to prepare? Well, thank you for that question. Uh, the first thing is they should listen to your question <laughs> because there was going to be $18 billion in this last infrastructure bill that uh, Biden and uh, the Democrats got passed just before the change of control of the House. And at the last minute, that $18 billion for pandemic preparedness was dropped because the House Republicans didn't want more money going into COVID, which they have some concerns about. Um, but the problem is we are so underfunded against pandemic preparedness. The funding that we have is so splintered between CDC and the FDA and NIH all the states, all the counties, um, we still don't have an adequate pandemic preparedness program in the country, although a lot of foundations have started them, and there's certainly a lot more interest because of COVID. But uh, throughout history, every time there's been a pandemic, you can read uh, Albert Camus' The Plague, you can go back to Daniel Defoe, The Plague Years, there's always a boom and bust. You know, when the pandemic is going, it's easy to raise money and, and prepare what you need to do. But the moment it's over, you get a bust. And public health is then left without funding to continue doing the work. And I'm afraid we're entering into that period right now. So the answer to your question is, the first thing we need to do is to 
recreate the pandemic aware awareness and 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 um, concern, even though this one may be waning, and I'm not sure it is, but if it is, we still need to understand that the next one is, that having you know it's it's a great illusion. When I got into this business, I was told, well, a pandemic is a one in a hundred year phenomenon, like the hundred year flood. But having a hundred year flood does not mean you're not going to get one the next year. It doesn't protect you. It's not like getting a, a vaccination. And uh, having a pandemic of a coronavirus doesn't stop the next influenza pandemic. So I, I wish that we were better prepared. Uh, there's a National Academy panel getting started on something like that. I uh, I know that some of the states have done a lot better than others. Uh, in fact, when we go back to that idea of excess deaths, um, if you live in a red state, you're three times as likely to have died during this pandemic than if you live in a blue state. Um, and I'll, I'll leave it to your imagination of why that is. Well, it's fascinating uh, to think about, particularly in light of uh, those like DeSantis who have gotten, I don't want to get too political here, but a lot of momentum behind them, largely because of their, what they seem to be, uh, uh, attitudes that are not restrictive or that do not put down mandates or that do not, you know, try to... In fact, you've said some things that... Uh, I want to get to some more questions that are coming in, but that gave me pause in terms of public health uh, concern about some of the antigen tests where public health is concerned. Yeah, so um, antigen tests um, are inexpensive. They're done. You can do them at home. They're very convenient. They certainly have a place. Uh, when you have had COVID for 10 days, when you want to know, are, is it safe for me to go out? Am I still infectious? An antigen test, especially two negative antigen tests two days in a row, will tell you that you're no longer infectious. They have a very good role to play. Unfortunately, the way we want to use them is I'm going to go to my family reunion. I would like everybody to be tested before we get there. In that circumstance, an antigen test is not very good because in order for most antigen tests to become positive, you need to have so many viruses in your nasopharynx. And we usually, we characterize that as the number of viral particles per cubic microliter. You need to have 50,000, 100,000 viral particles per cubic microliter. Well, you, by the time you get that, you've been infectious for two days. The PCR tests will be will show that you're infectious two days before the antigen tests will. And the molecular tests, which are also inexpensive, also done at home, also easy to use, those are much better than the antigen tests. The other bad thing I don't like about the antigen tests <clears throat> is that a person who tests positive is not reported into the public health department. We have no that. idea how many yeah. cases we have now. Uh, so you said the technical the, there's the technology to remedy that. What is it? Well, it would be easy enough to build into the positive antigen test the requirement that if you test positive, you report into the health department. Easy to do, yeah. I mean, the easiest thing is to tell people that they they have to do it. Yeah, but we don't even do that. But the molecular tests are better. Why? Well, the molecular tests, most of them, and there's three, there's one called DETECT out of MIT, one that's in Emeryville called um, Lucera, and another one called Q. Uh, two of those have a built-in 
mechanism for reporting into uh, the local health department when there is a positive test. That's not Q of QAnon, I take it. No, no, no. It's it. It was a good name before that. It's C U E. It is ironic, though, isn't it? Lots of irony when we talk about COVID. Um, well, actually, um, you just had it. You got it going to Davos uh, in Zurich, was it? Do you say you got no? It? I got it coming back from Davos. Uh, I actually, uh, there's a group of five of us that write the uh, protocols for Davos. I hope that we kept Davos quite safe both in the summer and last week. Uh, but I, I was fortunate enough to fly over there with a friend in a, in a private plane. So I didn't go through the airport going there. And I didn't get COVID at Davos. But coming back, I flew uh, uh, commercially through the uh, uh, Zurich airport on the day that they announced that you don't have to wear masks anymore. So people in the airport were spitting and yelling and shouting and very happy. But uh, I'm sure that that's where I contracted it. There's a question uh, for you from one of our team members, Chad, in Columbia, Missouri, who says, to what extent are the protections gained from having contracted COVID-19 comparable to those provided by vaccination? Yeah, I think in some ways, the protection that you get from having had the disease is superior to the vaccines at this stage in the disease from keeping you from uh, getting it. But the vaccines are far superior to keep you from getting very sick and keeping you from getting dead. And the question of waning immunity has got to be built in here. The vaccines will protect you for a longer period of time than having had the disease. But I think my field of public health and epidemiology was very slow to accept the premise that hybrid immunity, having had the disease, what we call natural immunity, and having gotten vaccinated, vaccine-induced immunity, hybrid, both of them, is far superior to any one of them alone. Uh, but uh, bear in mind, this new immune-evasive subvariant, if you've had COVID three months ago, I don't think you have very much immunity to the current uh, subvariant that's circulating. Do we know why people get long COVID or what the reason is, uh, if any, behind, yeah. reasons behind it? So first, I don't even know that we have an adequate case definition of long COVID. Um, just to say that people have residual symptoms six months later, that's not a very helpful um, case definition. It, let's go back to what COVID is and what it isn't. When you and I talk about it, we probably think of it as a respiratory disease because it's spread by the respiratory route mostly. But I think that the Virologists who've been studying long COVID now think of COVID as the disease of cells that have ACE2 receptors. Now, that's a complicated bit of virology. But those cells are often um, the blood vessels. So if you think of COVID as a disease that is a disease of the blood vessels, the vasculitis, so to speak, that it's spread respiratory, then you begin to get a better picture of it. Because if it's spread, um, if it's affecting the blood vessels, then it affects every organ. Therefore, long COVID can be a brain stroke. Therefore, long COVID can be kidney favor, failure. Therefore, long COVID can be liver failure. And that's what we're seeing. That's what long COVID seems to be, a microvasculitis over time that affects all the organs. It's a pan-organ disease. And because of that, 
it's so difficult for somebody who's got, well, I had a stroke or I had kidney failure to think that they're victims of the same virus. It's a pernicious virus. That's why the hidden cost of COVID and the hidden cost of not getting vaccinated is going to be over the next decade as we see people who've had kidney fever, have had strokes, who have all of those costs and the burden that long COVID will cost us in terms of lives and suffering and families being torn apart, but also in terms of Medicare costs. And failure to get vaccinated does predispose you to getting long COVID when you get COVID. If you're not vaccinated, your risk of getting long COVID is multiplied if you get COVID. Um, and we're just beginning to understand if you had COVID twice, maybe your risk of getting long COVID doubles or triples. And I know people who had COVID three times. So long COVID continues to be a problem. Uh, there's some wonderful scientists working on it, been some great publications recently, but we're a long way from understanding both the factors that lead you to be more prone to get it. And certainly we're a long way away from understanding the ways to treat it and cure it. Our guest is Larry Brilliant, epidemiologist, technologist, and philanthropist. And our next question comes from Chris in Tempe, Arizona. He says, taking a long view, would the world be better off if we could let go of the warfare battle metaphor for conquering a disease and substitute a narrative of reestablishing ecological balance? Chris, I wish to God that were true. <laughs> I wish you were right. Um, you know, uh, the war against smallpox, let's just take that as an example. It really was a war. We talked of it as a campaign. We, we thought in war metaphors. I'm an old hippie. Uh, that was a language that was foreign to me. But the truth is that even if you only look at the last century, the 20th century, which wasn't so long ago, 23, 24 years ago. In that century, smallpox killed between 300 million and half a billion people, 500 million. And there's no way to stop it from killing that number of people unless you eradicate the disease. So we had to run an eradication program, which looks an awful lot like a military campaign. It has to be done in a short period of time. It's all in. It takes you know, kind of all of government response. And it has to be done in every country of the world at the same time. So the eradication of smallpox was almost a military campaign. And that warlike metaphor was good for smallpox. Now you're, you're really asking, is that the right metaphor for flu? Is that the right metaphor for RSV? Is that the right metaphor for COVID? And I think in that case, when you look at how a pandemic affects society, 15, 20 trillion dollars in costs, probably 20 million deaths so far from COVID. At a time when we've got the best medical care in the world, why are we having 20 million deaths? That's just because that's what happens when you have a new disease. And, an, and a pandemic is almost always a brand new novel disease. And historically, over the last three or 400 years, almost always a virus. Um, it's, it's a hard question. I wish that we could, you know, live in peace with nature. But certainly climate change is showing that we're not doing that. Uh, but thus far, pandemics are in a different class 
because they affect so many people all over the world simultaneously. Uh, they really take campaign-like mentality to uh, to be a countervailing punch. Um, I wish it were not true. Well, we talk about you know battles with cancer, and you know people had uh, were defeated, or despite their fighting, uh, were not able to succeed in the war against cancer and all those kinds of things. I mean, it's been with us, and it's going to stay with us, I suspect. But that's a very thoughtful answer on your part. Thank you. What's your view of once a pandemic begins, uh, what we ought to do uh, in conjunction with what we've learned from this pandemic? I mean, should we go on a lockdown? Uh, should everybody continue to wear masks? Uh, Bob Wachter, first podcast I did was with him. He said, always wear a mask inside, um, just as a good rule of thumb. And I think it makes sense if you're on an airplane or in the airport, for that matter, uh, to a great degree. Not a cloth mask, but where I want to protect yourself. Um, in other words, we certainly must have learned some things that we could apply in the event of another siege of this sort. I'll use another warlike metaphor. Mm -hmm. Well, I think the lockdowns is what, you know, that's one of the tough questions to ask. Um, did, did, Michael, did you ever meet Dan Kahneman? Yes, I, I interviewed oh, him a couple of times. Yeah. He, he's a superb thinker. Dan Kahneman won the Nobel Prize uh, in economics, but for behavioral economics. Uh, so when the pandemic began really early on in 2020, uh, when people were considering lockdowns, I called him and I had a conversation with some people. We did a, our own little Zoom call. And one of the questions I asked him was, would lockdowns work in the United States? And his answer was so thoughtful. He said, they will work once. But given America's individualism, you'll never be able to apply, apply a lockdown the second time. And I think he was really right. Yeah, boy, I um, agree. I, lock, lockdowns should be uh, like nuclear weapons. They should be used when all else fails. They should be used for a short period of time, highly targeted. People should understand where lockdowns come from. They come from the idea of quarantine. And we've done that for infectious diseases for a very long time. The word quarantine itself comes from its Italian roots, which means 40, and a lockdown of 40 days was required of any ships coming into Venice, into the harbor that had yellow fever on it. But it goes yeah, back to Noah, doesn't it? <laughs> 40 nights and 40 days? Very similar, yes. Yeah. But the idea was that if you kept them away from you, locked down for 40 days, then the ship could come in and the people on it who got yellow fever might have died or been thrown overboard, but the ship would not be infectious any longer. And that's sort of the antecedent to the idea of the lockdowns that we've used here. Um, I think clearly China's lockdown has proven itself to be uh, ill-chosen uh, because once you have a lockdown that lasts that long, there is no easy way to end it unless every other country has eradicated the disease, and that clearly wasn't going to happen. Well, forgive me, Larry. China seemed like it was kind of an octopus. It was trying to put tentacles everywhere, you know, to deal with this terrible, ubiquitous pandemic. And the reality was uh, they weren't making much progress. And it also brings me back, you're speaking of antecedents. Do we know anything more about the Wuhan lab as opposed to the markets uh, in terms of the beginnings of COVID? Yeah, so that the, the world is divided into uh, red and blue and boys and girls, and apparently the world's also divided into uh, the Wuhan 
Institute or the Wuhan Seafood Market, right? <laughs> in terms of the origin story. Uh, in our article in Foreign Affairs uh, this week, we actually propose a third hypothesis. Mm. Um, and I'll explain what that is. I'm sorry, could I ask you who we is in this? Who you uh, we is myself, uh, Ian Lipkin, who's a virologist at Columbia, Lisa Danzig, who's a vaccinologist in the Bay Area, and Mark Smolinski, who is the head of an organization called Ending Pandemics. So the, the four of us wrote this article. And, um, you know, the Wuhan Institute of Virology undoubtedly had bats, and they undoubtedly had bats with coronaviruses. And I would argue they would have been guilty of malpractice if they didn't, because SARS, another disease of bats, so close to this one, began in China, and China hid it for six months. And so if China was to be a good citizen of course, it would be doing research on are there any other diseases like that? Can we find them? We don't want to make that mistake again. So it would have been legitimate for the Wuhan Institute of Virology to be studying bats, which means it would have had to have been collecting bats. And ironically, the broader the area and the broader the variety of bats that you collect, the more likely you're going to find one that's highly infectious with a disease that could infect human beings. Did that happen at the Wuhan Institute of Virology? Maybe. But it certainly happened at another institute closer to the seafood market called the Wuhan CDC. And we've actually seen, again, this group of ours, we've seen video of the bat collectors from the Wuhan CDC going out into Burma, into China, into Laos, all through Thailand, gathering bats and bringing them back to the Wuhan CDC, which was only three football fields walk away from the Wuhan seafood market. It's far more likely that somebody brought a bat that was infectious because that's what they wanted to study, and they brought it under conditions that were not ideal. And in the very videos that the Wuhan CDC uses to promote its work, you see bat collectors without masks, without proper uh, gloves and clothing. So it, 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 the short answer is, of course, we don't know. And it's the trail is getting colder and colder. But I'm sure that the Republicans in Congress are going to make it their number one priority to talk to everybody and to try to find out whether there were gain-of-function studies being done in the Wuhan Institute. Of, and I don't know. But I do know that this other... Uh, center was a lot closer than the Wuhan Institute of, of, of Virology, which was 15 miles away. This one was a 20-minute walk away. But you had people like Rand Paul, you're speaking about the Republicans, uh, who were blaming Fauci. Um, and there are many who have blamed Dr. Fauci and continue to castigate him. I mean, he's had to have private protection and so forth because he's been made into uh, a villain because of his connections to Wuhan. We, we owe Dr. Fauci a great debt of gratitude. Um, I mean, if you think of the idea of a, uh, a civil servant, and you think of the 40 years that he put in, um, and so many of the great discoveries that have come out of the uh, NIH division that he has run for that many years, we're very grateful to him. Now, 
did did the U.S. fund gain of function studies? I mean, I mean, they're really asking the question: Did NIH fund this group called Eco Health Alliance, which was working with the Wuhan Institute of Virology to do scientific studies on bats and coronaviruses? Well, I'm sure we did, and they did. Were they gain of function studies? I don't know. And what does gain of function mean? Gain of function means that you've got a virus, you know it will affect human beings. It may be innocuous. And you want to ask the question, if a billion people get it, does it have the capacity to mutate into something that can create a pandemic? So you try to artificially provoke the virus to mutate or you make it in a form that it is more transmissible or more or creates or more fatal in order to then ask the question of how can we stop it? How can we treat it? How can we prevent it? This has been done for a long time in many places around the world for many diseases. I don't know if it was done in the Wuhan Institute of, of Virology, but if you're actually just going to bring the virus in the bat that already has it, that's more likely to me than it was actually done in a Petri dish. But again, I'm, I'm agnostic because I just don't know. But we wanted to add that third possibility in our article because it just seemed more likely that the, the place where bats were being brought together and hanging in closets and congregating and collected almost right on the edge of the Wuhan seafood market was a more likely candidate. And that'll be in the next issue of Foreign Affairs. It's in the current. On oh, the current issue. Good. We'll look for it. Thank you. And I'm looking at another question coming in from Robert in Los Angeles. If the next pandemic has a higher mortality rate, I think he means mortality. He says morality here. But that's mortality rate. What steps can the U.S. and the world take to react faster, more effectively? Was COVID just a rehearsal for something more deadly? Well, first of all, I'm in favor of the next pandemic having a high morality rate. <laughs> yeah, well, I want to go on the I want to go on the record of, of wanting that. Unless you're locked we, down and you can, <laughs> we 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 need more morality. That's for sure. Um, yeah, I, I do think that COVID could be thought of as a, a dress rehearsal for something worse. But I want to caution everybody that these are all low probability events. They're highly consequential. The world of low probability, highly consequential events is the world of epidemiology. We have to think about these things, but we don't have to worry about them every day. They don't have to be taking the oxygen out of the air and stopping us from living our lives. There is always a possibility that you have a virus that could spread like smallpox and kill like Ebola. In fact, that virus would be called a chimera, named after the Greek monster. Now, who would ever make that on purpose? Well, the Russians did. That's exactly what they did with a $1 billion five-year plan to create an institute called Vector, the goal of which was to try to create that chimera so they could have a bioweapon because America's nuclear stockpile was getting larger than theirs. And America could both make guns and butter, and the Russians were not able to do that. And Gorbachev, who was admirable in so many other ways, he funded that billion dollars. And how I know that is I met him and I asked him, 
that's a real thing that really happened. I mentioned earlier before we got on the air the book by Kentov Elabekov, Kent Elabek, which describes the Russian um, science project to create a weapon like that. Obviously, if that happened and it got loose, then COVID would have just been a dress rehearsal. I, I don't know that nature is about to create another new pandemic organism that will spread faster than COVID and kill as bad as smallpox. Um, we don't know of organisms like that. It doesn't mean they won't happen, but it would be bad enough to get another COVID right now. I don't think the world could really handle having another pandemic, even of this size, uh, because don't you think everybody's got PTSD? Isn't the world kind of, you know, sleepwalking through these days as we try to get to the end of the pandemic? I just think it would be a, a catastrophe to have another pandemic. Prompts it doesn't have to be worse than this to be worse. I'm sorry, it just prompts me to ask you, where are we with monkeypox? So monkeypox is really interesting. Um, it's part of the orthopox family. Uh, there, there seems to be almost a pox for every animal. There's giraffe pox, there's lion pox, there's mouse pox. And monkey pox is probably really mouse or rat pox. It's, it's probably a rodent pox virus that normally lives in the, the forests, uh, primarily in two places, in Nigeria and the Congo. There's two different clones or two different clades or two different subspecies of it. And before the end of smallpox, while everybody in the world was getting vaccinated against smallpox, which, which went on for 30 or 40 years, that um, prevalence of monkeypox was kept very low, 10, 15, 20, 50 cases a year. That was because everybody was getting vaccinated against smallpox. I told you earlier that the first vaccine against smallpox was really a disease called cowpox because there's cross-immunogenicity between cowpox and smallpox. There's also cross-immunogenicity between smallpox and mousepox, smallpox and monkeypox. So when everybody was getting vaccinated against smallpox, monkeypox was kept in abeyance. When we eradicated smallpox, and in 1980, when WHO declared the world free of smallpox, very quickly, country after country, dropped the mandate, dropped the vaccine mandate as they should have, because the risk was gone. When they did that, monkeypox began to get on the ascendancy. And then quickly it got up to about 3,000 cases per year in Nigeria and the Congo. And it stayed like that until it got into a community of people who were having sex with each other and rubbing bodies and some of which had lesions on them. Sorry, it was largely gay men, wasn't it? Gay men. Yeah. Uh, in the beginning, it became heterosexual very quickly. Yeah. And it rapidly rose, but it almost as rapidly went down because those same, that same gay community, I think having learned the lessons of HIV AIDS, changed their behavior almost more dramatically than I've seen behavior change for almost anything so quickly. So I think right now monkeypox is on the decline. We have great vaccines against monkeypox. First, we have the old smallpox vaccine. That still works. It probably has more side effects 
than the newer vaccines, specifically against monkeypox. But we've got those now, too. So I no longer worry, as I did before, about monkeypox. I have to say, though, one of the bad things is that because of this outbreak of monkeypox, there is now the monkeypox virus in two dozen new animal species. And they're not going to go away and we can't vaccinate them. So we're going to live with um, a world in which that virus will continue to be spread from mink to mink, from squirrel to squirrel. Uh, and we'll have to see if that ever bounces back into humans. I have another question for you, Larry. And um, this good. He's sort of opening up the Larry Brilliant autobiography here, um, which I'd like to maybe explore a little bit in the little time we have left. Um, here's how he phrases it. This is Colin, who again is a member of the Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team. He says, how did a hippie become a pandemic-fighting epidemiologist, and what did your early roots give you in your later professional contributions to the world? Colin, I wrote a book about that. It's called Sometimes Brilliant. Um, no, I'm I, I did, but I'm also kidding, of course. Um, so I, I think I'm just the luckiest guy in the world. Um, uh, I was doing my internship uh, here in San Francisco. I was at a Presbyterian Hospital. It used to be the teaching hospital for Stanford. And now that same building, of course, it's much more modernized and huger, prettier. Uh, it's now part of CPMC or Sutter. That's where I did my internship. Towards the end of my internship, a, a group of Native Americans took over Alcatraz. And uh, Herb Cain, the wonderful columnist of my era, most young people have never heard of Herb Cain, but he was a great columnist and many people my age would open up the Chronicle or the Examiner every day and read what he wrote. There was a woman named Lou Trudell, the wife of John Trudell, who was a troubadour, um, um, a, a singer, a spoken word artist, friend of Bob Dylan, uh, Lou Trudell was pregnant with her third child, and she wanted to deliver the child on Indian liberated land. Uh, there, if it, it had been 200 years since an Indian baby was born on land that had been returned to Indians. That was her feeling. Well, the Coast Guard was embargoing, isolating uh, Alcatraz. No medicine was there. There was no water. There were no doctors. And every day, Herb Cain would write, what kind of a world is this that no doctor is willing to go out there and help deliver this baby? Well, after I'd read that for, and I'm ashamed to say, a couple of weeks, I figured that maybe I was that doctor. So I went out, I lived on Alcatraz, and I helped deliver that baby. And it was a wonderful amazing experience. They named the baby Wavoka. Next year, we're bringing Wavoka, now 50 years old, back to Alcatraz to celebrate his birth. And he and I have become good friends. But at that moment, when I got off the island, I had every television camera put in my face saying, what do the Indians want? And I was just a kid from Detroit. I had never met Indians until I went to live on Alcatraz. And I didn't have very good answers. You but met I must Indians had, in India, though. <laughs> I had not been to India. India. I, no, no, I had not been to India. This is how I got to India. Uh. Because uh, somebody from Warner Brothers saw me on television 
And they offered me a job as a young doctor on a caravan that was going to be about Crosby, Stills, and Nash, and the Grateful Dead, and the Jefferson Airplane. And uh, my wife and I said, what the hell? <laughs> and we ran away with the circus. And uh, we brought our little Volkswagen Westphalia, and there were about 20 big buses, and we were the caboose. It was the doctor's van. Uh, and I became good friends with Wavy Gravy. And all the people that Ken Kesey had, the Merry Pranksters that he had uh, created. And I became good friends with the Grateful Dead and Dave Crosby. Who were you just, a deadhead, actually? A sort of I, deadhead? Uh, yeah, I mean, I still am, you know. Uh, I, I still am. And I'm, you know, I'm very proud of those days when being a hippie meant peace, love, and rock and roll. It didn't mean... You know, just being kind of lazy and irresponsible. It was really wonderful. But you were also wonderful. friends later on with Steve Jobs. Pretty good friends, in fact, weren't you? Yeah. So I met Steve because he came. So so this caravan that I mentioned that was making this movie called The Medicine Ball Caravan that I did play a young doctor in, it ended with a Pink Floyd show. And I was a rock doc by then um, in Canterbury. Obviously, we'd had to change buses at the at the big ocean. Uh, but we wanted to stay on the buses. So we bought two more buses, and we drove from Canterbury, England, to Kathmandu. We lived in Afghanistan, Iraq, Iran, Pakistan, India, Nepal. And it, I mean, it was a life-changing experience for me. Um, we studied along the way all the religious groups in that area. We would go to mosques and churches and temples and synagogues. Um, and my wife and I wound up living in an ashram in the Himalayas with our teacher, Neem Karoli Baba. Steve Jobs also came there. So uh, one day when I had already gone back and I was working at WHO and I'd taken off my white ashram robe and I'd trimmed my beard and cut my ponytail and I was trying to pretend that I looked like a UN medical officer, um, I was in my office at the WHO headquarters in New Delhi, and Steve walked in, and uh, the receptionist called me and said, Larry, there's a dirty hippie here. <laughs> he's barefoot. He's dirty. He looks just like you looked when you first came to work here. <laughs> he wants to meet you. So I went down, and I met him, and he looked like everybody else who all the other young Americans had gone to India at that time. It was part of our you know, career path. And uh, I said, well, what, what can I do for you? He said, I want a salad. I can't, every salad that you eat in India, I get diarrhea. I want a salad and I want an air conditioned place. I said, well, you know, the WHO uh, canteen has great salads. They're, they're safe and it's, it's air conditioned. And so I bought Steve lunch and we <laughs> talked for hours and it was a very nice meeting. Uh, and then he went back and created Apple, uh, and we finished eradicating smallpox. And then afterwards, when I came back to be a professor at the University of Michigan, Steve came and stayed with us and visited with us. He gave me the money to start the SEVA Foundation. He gave me computers so that we could run epidemiological studies of blindness in Nepal, do stochastic sampling. Um, he helped me uh, take my first company public, which became the well that you mentioned. And we became such good friends for 40 years. Um, he was just an amazing, wonderful human being. And yeah, 
That's, I met him only once, but it's a, it's a, not, doesn't come up to the status or quality of your anecdotes about him and all the experiences you had with him. But it was a funny moment because uh, he said to me, um, it was a good line. He said, Michael Krasny, you're supposed to be on my dashboard, which I thought was <laughs> a pretty good line at the time. Um, you mentioned the well. We've got a little bit of time left, uh, which was founded with a mutual friend of ours, Stuart Brand, who founded the Whole Earth Catalog, as I said in the introduction. And I remember having a conversation with Stuart at his, I think it was his 70th birthday party, and he said, I'm just middle-aged now because with biotechnology, you know, 70 is only going to be kind of halfway there in terms of longevity. But another thing he said to me at the time, said, we live, live to 140? I don't know about that, Stuart. But we were talking about the well, and the well was way ahead of what we ought now take for granted in terms of the internet and all that it has provided. And I said to him, what is it that makes for all the enmity and rancor when people are protected in their anonymity? You know, uh, a lot of kind of, I don't know what you call them, elemental, barbaric even, <laughs> sorts of uh, aggressive things come out. Uh, and I mean, just the, the, thinking of all the trolls and all the, you know, anger that comes out of me, he said, Michael, this is a mystery I wish I could solve. I mean, those are almost his exact words. And uh, to this day, it remains an enigma and a mystery to me. We have the good fortune of having high-minded people who call in with questions and we're spoiled that way. And, uh, you know, there are uh, people who join this community are not necessarily the troll-type people. But, boy, they're out there. And uh, have any thoughts about that? Yeah, well, the, the, well, uh, the, the well attracted high-minded people. And uh, you know, it's still going today. Yes, it is. I know. So we started in 1984. We took it. I took it public in 1985. I took the parent company of the well in 1985. And um, you know, uh, then I sold my half to Salon.com, and later Stuart sold his half to Salon.com. And then the users of the well bought it back from Salon.com. So it is a user-owned collective. And it's wonderful. And for people who haven't used it, you can get on uh, well.com, and you can go back all the way to 1985 and think the, and look at what people thought of sex, drugs, rock and roll, and uh, politics all the way back then, because everything's been preserved. Um, but I think what made it work and what made it survive was Stewart, because he was the greatest raconteur, impresario, uh, and he did three or four things that are different from what Zuckerberg has done or, or what Twitter is. Number one, you really couldn't be anonymous on the well. I mean, you really couldn't. You had to work at it. I mean, some people managed to do it, but it wasn't encouraged the way it is now. Number two, he never sold advertising. So no words were owned by people. Number three, he had sysops. And a SYSOP is S-Y-S-O-P. And these are really curators. They're also babysitters. They make sure that no one breaks the rules. And the rules were civil discourse. You own your own words. We'll never sell them. You can't blame us for them. And these simple things, plus a subscription model, $2 an hour, $8 a month. That's what we charge at the well. I don't know what they charge now. Um, I think it's going but, up. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but it meant that people could afford it. Yeah. And the last thing I would say, 
is to get on the well in those days, You, we didn't have the internet or the web. We didn't even have packet switching networks yet. You had to dial up with a haze modem. And for those of us who are old enough, we remember the sound. Let's all say it together. <laughs> That's the sound of cats making love, or it's the sound of a haze modem. And because it was difficult to get on, because you weren't anonymous, because there was no advertising. And because there were community standards, basically. There were community yeah. standards. Yeah. yeah. And and also he also had parties. He had parties on his houseboat, on the on his on his tugboat. Uh every month there was a party so people could get to know each other in real life. And I think that also it's much harder to to be hateful to somebody face to face. Yeah, one last question. Uh, you also, as I said in the introduction, have some techno patents. What are your patents? I only have one patent. Uh, it is on a, um, <laughs> it's on a, D I actually have a picture of, I actually have one right here. It's, it's, it's on a DTMF generator, an optical scanner that translates printed words into DTMF tones. And these are the tones that are used to make phone calls and make calls switch back and forth. Um, and uh, we printed smart cards with those codes on them. And then with the optical scanner, it would make these tones. And that would allow you access to make long distance calls. It would allow you uh, entry into social networks. It was called OSCARD. So you got the title technologist from that patent? or? Oh, no, I've run a couple of tech companies since then. Um, <laughs> but at the top. <laughs> right, not not in the inventor uh, category. Right, right. That's right. The uh, only one, only one, only one patent. Well, it's been a delight talking. It was fun to, you. to get it. Yeah, I'll bet it is. Really enjoy talking to you and learn so much from you. And uh, can't tell you how much I appreciate your being with us. Hey, Michael. On behalf of the entire Bay Area, if I could, we love you. And uh, anytime we can hear your voice or. You can come into our dashboard. It's a good day. Thank you for that. Much appreciated. And thanks to all who heard today's podcast or will hear it recorded. It's our 25th. That's a kind of milestone. And uh, you can join the growing community of members simply by going to graymatters.show. That's great with an E. Thanks to the Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, and Kevin. And special thanks to our very special guest, Dr. Larry Brilliant. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.